Hey everyone, it's Father Sam. Today on The Tangent, I have a very special guest. Dr. Christopher Alteri will be joining me. We'll be talking about some of the news that you're seeing about the Catholic Church today. Chris is a teacher of social studies at Fairfield College Preparatory School here in Fairfield, Connecticut. But he's also got a long history as a journalist. He's worked for Vatican Radio. He's written three books, most recently reading the news without losing your faith. You can find his articles on the Catholic World Report, the Catholic Herald, and many other Catholic news organizations. I'm really excited to have him here, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Chris Altieri, welcome to The Tangent. <laughs> Great to be here, Father Sam. Really happy to have you on. Um, let's start with just a little bit of your history in journalism, uh, working with Vatican Radio. How did you end up over there doing all of this? Well, I, I didn't go over to Rome to do all of this. Uh, it was uh, fair to say, I think, by accident, uh, one accident of divine providence, let's say. Uh, I was uh, doing postgrad work in philosophy at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. Uh, this is in the early aughts. I was uh, just married and we uh, had a baby on the way. Um, just born, I think, actually. I was uh, nearing what I thought was the uh, the end of my doctoral work and wasn't going to shake a stick at a steady paycheck when the opportunity presented itself at that point. Uh, there was a slot that opened up at Vatican Radio. Uh, and, you know, I'd done some occasional reporting and some special writing for uh, outfits uh, here at home around the time of the transition uh, from uh, John Paul II to Pope Benedict and uh, liked the work, had a face for radio, as they say. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I, I started to, to take some shifts uh, on the news desk at Vatican Radio. This would have been over the summer of, I think, 2005. And then a, a permanent slot opened up very shortly after that, in September, I think, of uh, of 2005. And they asked me to stay on and uh, you know become part of the uh, part of the actual okay. team. And the rest, I guess, is history. Now, yeah. the the outfit itself, Vatican Radio, went through some pretty significant transformations during that time. You know, when I started there, it was uh, still a radio station primarily, right? Um, uh, there was a website, but it was pretty static. It didn't get updated all the time. And if it did, it was, uh, you know, links to radio bits. And let's know. be honest, the Catholic Church has never been known for maintaining up-to-date websites. Fair enough, right? <laughs> uh, and the Vatican, uh, the unofficial maxim uh, uh, regarding all of the technological side of uh, operations, uh, not only in the comms department, uh, is uh, yesterday's technology tomorrow, right? Uh, <laughs> I like that so, idea. Uh, you know, there, 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 yeah, there are stories that go around. I don't quote me on them, uh, but, uh, you know, of then Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, you know, 
pulling out his wallet and, you know, giving someone either a wad of cash or a credit card to go buy a computer for his office when he took over at, at some oh, point. Wow. Yeah. Now, I'm getting the details of that wrong, I'm sure. So, yeah. don't, folks, take this with a grain of salt. <laughs> I don't have my notes in front of me, uh, and I, I like to be precise on these things. You know, rotary dial telephones in the 2000s, wow. things like that, you know. Um, wow. So, yeah, it's it, it's going to, you know, uh, it, ta- it takes a minute, but yeah. uh, there you have it. Okay. Uh, there was, you know, some pretty significant development, though, when I was uh, when I was there. And I think also a, a, a belief that technology could do a lot of things that uh, made it possible to uh, do more with less, which uh, people in managerial positions like to hear and like to believe. Do more uh, with less is always a good thing for somebody right. who's a manager. It, you know, um, it, but, you know, that that just goes to show you that there's a very human side to all of that. that so, yeah. Now, when you were working at the radio desk, were you primarily a, a presenter of the news, reading the news, or were you doing the reporting yourself? Uh, very often I'd be doing the reporting uh, myself. Uh, uh, and all of us on the team would be doing the reporting and, you know, one of us would read the news. We tried to do it so that, uh, you know, uh, the, the news reader of the night uh, or of the morning wasn't really heavily involved in the news gathering portion of it. That's just a, you know, pretty standard and straightforward di- division of labor. Sure. But we uh, we all wore a lot of hats, uh, and it, it was also a different kind of uh, reporting that we were doing um, at Vatican Radio. It was uh, a semi-official outfit uh, and set up deliberately to be that, right, uh, so that curial officials could uh, say things that they wanted to say and have, uh, you know, a, a degree of uh, not quite plausible denial. Ability, but hey, you know, I was just talking. It was something I said on Vatican Radio. It was the course of an interview. You know, mm. uh, these these things happen. So you can float ideas, you can get things out there, uh, and it, it's not an official statement coming from the Vatican. Mm. Right? This is a very very Jesuitical, and I say that in a in a good. Uh, sense of the term. I, I am not a Jesuit, uh, but I speak Jesuit, if, if you will. <laughs> you're you're uh, pretty thoroughly educated by the Jesuits. <laughs> yeah, my my entire education from secondary school on has been with them, and they've played an, an enormous part in my formation, uh, uh, not only professional uh, but spiritual as well. Um, and I'm, you know, I love them. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, I thought about becoming one, you know. Mm. We can talk about that if you want. It could be our first tangent. But, uh, <laughs> uh, um, you know, there uh, – it, it's also uh, a, a very Roman thing, right? Uh, these levels of, of officially uh, – Officiality, ufficialità, yeah. it would be the Italian word, right? Um, semi-ufficiale, uh, which I think listeners can understand pretty pretty readily, right? Yeah. Semi-official, I think I may have used it before. Well, what does that mean? It's kind of like being a little bit pregnant, isn't it? Well, no, yeah. uh, You're talking about something that was real, uh, that the, with Vatican Radio, you've got 
it, it's an, an ability for the the Holy See to get the news out that they want to see out to to get some some good word about the church out there. But then there's also that that part where with the independence that's present, you're able to talk about things and and report on things that um, could potentially be critical of something that the, an official in the church was doing, or that could. Uh, even speak to some of those those things that aren't always so happy. In other words, it's not just an organ that's going to be spouting only the best and most positive things. It's not a spin doctor machine. It's it's instead something that is is actually reporting the news, even though it's uh, semi official. Yeah, you. I, I'm trying you to think. Would. Like maybe the closest corollary that comes to mind is the BBC, uh, somehow being connected to the crown and yet not officially. Uh, it, it's not entirely unfair. Uh, the the BBC is set up, uh, I think, a little bit differently in that it's not uh, it, it is not a a state outfit. You know. Yeah. Okay. Um, but in other words, Vatican Radio is not just state media. It's it's also its own sort of separate thing, though connected deeply, of course, to to the the Vatican. It was, you know, uh, and it, uh, but it was a it was a standalone. I think the the way to say it and to explain it, I think, would be that it, it was. Uh, it was a standalone. Juridically, it was erected as its own thing within uh, okay. the uh, the Vatican uh, system. It was the state broadcaster of the Vatican City State, now, right, of the Holy See. Um, but it was juridically its own thing. Yeah. Now, that's since uh, the end of 2016, I think, uh, you know, for a few years going now, let's say. Uh, has has not been the case ever since the the reforms of Pope Francis that brought all of the various communications organs and outfits within the Vatican under the umbrella of the new uh, well first it was called a secretariat now it's a dicastery for communications right okay so everything gets brought under the the one umbrella and then since your time working with Vatican Radio you've gone on to the Catholic Herald in the UK a Catholic World Report. Various and sundry other places. Yeah, well, reporting I've written, on, on yeah, the I've news. written for written for lots of different places. I was the Herald's uh, first Rome bureau chief, and later on their first international editor. I was a for executive editor of the Herald for a little bit of time. Uh, did some pretty significant reporting, if you don't mind my saying so, uh, on some pretty uh, pretty pretty major uh, issues uh, and stories. Um, but I, I I came into that kind of by accident as well. You know, when I left Vatican Radio, it was the end of 2017, and I had decided sometime before I actually left, you know, before my last day, my last broadcast was the New Year's Eve broadcast on mm. the evening uh, in Rome of uh, December 31st to 2017. And I was looking forward to, you know, writing some books that I'd had on the back burner, maybe making some easy money doing some consulting work. Uh, and uh, spending time with my family, being away from the 24-hour news cycle, you know, uh, I was I was stepping back from that uh, from that grind, uh, or looking forward to stepping back from that grind. But then uh, Pope Francis went to Chile, uh, mm. and uh, that was when the whole business with Juan Barros uh, was sort of a 
a hand grenade that exploded in the Pope's lap, but mostly because he pulled the pin and dropped it there. Uh, now, Barros was, was a bishop in Chile, right? It was a bishop in Chile. He is, uh, as far as I know, he's still alive and kicking. He's not, uh, I don't think, uh, any longer in any sort of uh, pastoral charge of any place. He was a protege of the sort of celebrity priest who was Chile's most notorious uh, clerical abuser, mm. a fellow named uh, Fernando Caradima. Now, Caradima um, was eventually convicted by a Vatican uh, canonical criminal court. Uh, and Francis was the one who eventually laicized him. Um, uh, he had been sentenced to a life of uh, prayer and penance, but not laicized. Uh, and so Francis accelerated that and well, well he, or moved, be, moved beyond just that sentence of prayer and yeah, penance to say you're also that, dismissed from the clerical state. Yeah, all, all of that happened. The, 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 the trial that eventually got him was back in, you know, started, I guess, in the late aughts, maybe uh, 2009, 2010. I think it was 2011, but again, I don't have my notes in front of me. You can check this and yeah. maybe we can stick it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the, but the the point was that he was uh, Caradima was convicted uh, and sentenced largely on the you know the strength of the testimony of uh, three uh, fellows who uh, had remained active as victim advocates and mm. uh, reform advocates uh, in Chile, uh, and they were the ones who accused Barros of basically being a protector of mm. uh, of Caradima. And so when and, he was named, so when yeah, when he was named bishop of when he in that sentence, by the way, is Barros when when he was named. Named uh, to uh, the Sea of Orsono, uh, Orsono in um, uh, no, not Orsino. Osorno. That's it. Sorry. Uh, 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 in in Chile, there was you know sustained protest on the ground. Right. Uh, was this the one where they blocked the entrance into the cathedral? Protesters were, were blocking the entrance to, to protest his taking the cathedral. Yes, and, and it it wasn't just a one off. You know, there was sustained opposition yeah. to this guy, uh, and some reporters in a gaggle outside Iquique, Chile, where Francis had gone sort of on a fence mending visit, right in, in early 2018, um, and asked him about the the Barros case and this agitation and what's going on. And uh, Francis said roughly but pretty closely, uh, well, you know, his accusers haven't brought any proof. And uh, when you accuse someone and you don't have any proof, that's calumny, right? Uh, he accused them of slander, essentially. Um, and, of course, that became the headline and all of the reporting and all of the focus was on this remark that he'd made to a, you know, a, a press gaggle on his way into the stadium. Well, he had a few days to, to deal with that. Um, because it wasn't part of the problem at that time that it, first it, it sounds kind of insensitive to somebody who's making an accusation to say that, oh, well, you don't have any proof. You're just accusing him. It's just calumny. It's sort of a dismissive sound to it. Even if that wasn't the intention, it can sound really dismissive. But then 
Wasn't part of the problem also that they had, in fact, brought proof that the the facts of the case were pretty demonstrable and that to suggest that they were just making accusations that were calumnious was simply not true. They were actually making an accusation about a true thing that had really, truly happened to them. Yes, short answer. Uh, <laughs> and and they were uh, they were eyewitnesses, right? Yeah. Uh, which is the thing that their their proof, as it were, uh, and evidence proof. Pope Francis, when he was on the plane on the way home, tried to play around with the language that he was using. Right? Um, it didn't make things better. Uh, but there was a lot of press reporting. Ah, oh, this is insensitive. In fact, even Cardinal O'Malley uh, was was pretty frank in his criticism of th- this dismissiveness, right? But there was a lot of talk about ah, oh, this is insensitive to the victims and to every victim and all of that. It was quite quite fair and true as far as it went. But for me. As an old Roman hand, maybe a little more hard-boiled and hard-bitten than the average bear, right? The, there was a there was a f- a more important part of the story which had to do with you know church government and governance, right? Yeah. Uh, which was that one, um, as you were sort of teasing there, uh, they did have proof. And the proof that they were bringing, the evidence that they were bringing was their own testimony. They were saying, we, we knew this guy. We saw him do these things. Uh, now, you can choose not to believe us, and that's fine, all right? But then let's, let's try that out and see, you know, what, let's see what the judges say, you know? Um, and, and it was also problematic because it was on the strength of their testimony that the Pope's own criminal court had found Karadima guilty. So all of a sudden, what were you, these guys are no longer trustworthy, right? Uh, you know, it, it's a it's a significant problem. Uh, so I wrote a single analysis piece, sort of laying this out and framing it. Uh, you know, if I had it in front of me right now, I probably would uh, uh, criticize some of the, uh, the the style and literary choices that I made. Uh, my my pen was uh, uh, was rusty at the time. I'd been writing uh, copy for radio for a while, right? Um, and was uh, concerned to be very, very precise, I'm sure, uh, and not to overstep things. But, uh, you know, folks started reading that and um, liked what I had to say, I guess, for, you know, after a, after a fashion, right? It's not terribly pleasant stuff to have to write about. Uh, but long story short, uh, you know, I went from, uh, I'm just going to write this one piece frame this story properly and to let people, you know, have a, have a gander at what the stakes really are. Because of course there's the whole, there's, there's a sensational element to that, right? It is horrible when the Pope is not only insensitive, but that kind of insensitive to victims. Um, but there's also a, 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 well, how are we dealing with this and how does his way of thinking about these things affect his ability to govern? You know, how does it, what are we learning about his decision-making thought process? And I thought that was not insignificant to everything that uh, was either happening or about to, right? Because yeah. that 
the, the, the Chile business uh, stayed around for several months and I don't really think has gone away, even though it slipped off the, the headlines. Well, and what happened in Chile also led then to the mass resignation of the entire episcopacy of the country, right? The, the, uh, sitting, the sitting bishops all uh, tendered their letters of resignation after a major crisis meeting in the Vatican. Pope Francis accepted some of them and most of them he kept. Yeah. So it's it's an interesting process then that this this one bishop put put in place, uh, who's the protege of a notorious abuser, uh, basically is the the domino that begins this this massive crisis. Uh, but it's not a crisis that's that's totally unfamiliar to us if we if we look historically and, and recent history even just just going back to the early two thousands with the spotlight scandal in Boston, you see how a few cases become the the domino that lead to the widespread investigation of and uncovering of uh, clerical sexual abuse all over the, all over the country and and really we're still dealing with that around the world now globally I, I think we are. And, you know, I mean, it, uh, Father Hans Zollner, the Jesuit who was in charge of the, the major uh, safeguarding institute at the uh, at the my alma mater, the Pontifical Gregorian University. Mine, too. Uh, yeah. Uh, our <laughs> our um, alma mater. Right. Um, it, it, you know, he, he said, well, you know, if, if, if your country is not dealing with this. It will be. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that's an area where uh, and he's, it's not going to be over in our lifetime. You right. Know, that I'm not the one saying that he is. Uh, and, you know, I think he I think he's right. There's one thing that I would, if you don't mind me nitpicking you a little bit. Please. Um, the I, I don't think that it's quite fair to say that the Chile business uh, began the crisis. Uh, it certainly began the this, you know, the the Franciscan chapter of the crisis. But Francis didn't make this. No, that's correct. Okay? This yeah. has been going on for years, uh, and you know, uh, no later than the 1960s, the highest levels of authority in the Vatican and at the early 60s, you know, uh, were were well aware that there was a significant. Yeah. Uh, no, I just meant problem. With, with Barros being the, the domino for, for Chile, not so much for the, the globals. The global scandal, we yeah, we know that that's a that's much bigger. <laughs> that's a much bigger, much bigger problem. But in terms of your own investigative reporting and everything, you go from from Chile and that's early 2018 and the resignation of bishops to then summer 2018. And summer 2018 begins a, a very uh, challenging chapter in the life of the church, especially here in the United States, but also just uh, sort of in the, the most recent history of the church, some, some pretty earth-shaking things happening. Yeah, I, I, uh, I suppose it's fair to say that uh, all that happened, didn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that might be the understanding. If you want to read more about it, I'd suggest that you pick up Chris's book, Into the Storm, which catalogs his entire reporting on this, on this subject. But it's, we're talking right now about the, uh, the scandal with then uh, Theodore Cardinal McCarrick. Yeah, and, and I, got, uh, I got on a plane. Um, it was uh, uh, June 20th. 
2018 uh, and had boarded the plane, taken my seat, and I was on my way for the you know to the states from Rome for the first uh, sort of extended vacation that I'd had in maybe about 10 years. And uh, my wife, my two kids were with us. Uh, we were on our way, and you know my editors knew where I was going and what I was doing or, or not really doing. <laughs> You're you know, supposed I, to be on I, vacation. I told, the, I told the guys at the Herald uh, that uh, you know I'll, I'll be good for my my one weekly sort of analysis column, but that otherwise that was it. Um, w- well. Between the time I guess I boarded the plane and the time that we landed and I got my, you know, my phone turned back on, the news had broken that uh, investigators had found uh, at, at that time it was one allegation against uh, the fellow we used to style, uh, Cardinal McCarrick, um, uh, going back to his time in in New York, um, and before he was it, a bishop, before he was a bishop, right? And it was a it was a, a, a well, fairly to say uh, that from that point on, my my vacation, my extended vacation, was a was a working vacation, very much uh, a working vacation. I, I, you know, I spent, I got there and I was on the phone for you know, uh, well, quite quite some time trying to just uh, figure out what the story was, right? Um, and that was a story that seemed to just keep going uh, and and getting worse. And the difficulty as, as, the, as the facts of the story came out, uh, as different details were, were being reported uh, all, over the, all over the place, uh, was, was just seeing how th- there were important questions that we couldn't quite find the answer to, uh, namely, how does how does somebody do this? How does somebody? And I don't mean the uh, the moral question of how. Uh, the moral question of how I think is obviously an important one, and we've got to ask that. How does somebody who's in a position of such trust and spiritual authority, and by vocation called to to be holy, as we all are called to be holy, but how does somebody so greatly betray their their call? to be a priest, to be, to be one who sanctifies and who ministers to others and, and abuse people. But not only that, the practical how question, how does somebody who's in a position like that and who is, as the story kept unfolding, it seemed more and more obvious that this was all pretty well known uh, and at least suspected that there were things going on that didn't, that didn't add up in Theodore McCarrick's life. How does somebody like that rise through the ranks to positions of of greater and greater authority, and in, even into the episcopacy and then the College of Cardinals? How does that happen? Yeah, you're quite right. Uh, the mechanical how, if I could put it that way, rather than like that. the moral how, uh, because you know, and it, it's a thing that I've said over the years. Uh, I'm sure more than once. Uh, that, and I've said it, you know, I've written it and I've put it in copy. I've, I've said it in talks that I've given, you know, holiness is not a program of governance. Um, and it's an important thing to remember, right? It just isn't. Certainly the failures of individual moral actors are failures 
of holiness, but that's sort of uh, it's a pretty big understatement. You're dealing with a, a failure of basic humanity, right? Um, and if anyone needs the aid of supernatural revelation in order to know that you're not supposed to do the things of which these men are, you know, accused and frequently have been found guilty, not frequently enough perhaps, because a lot of these things don't actually go to trial. And even when they do, they're secretly tried out in paper work affairs. And, you know, that, that's a whole other, uh, you know, conversation to have about this. Uh, well, one of the questions that I've had, and I remember putting it to Cardinal Supic uh, at the press conference, sort of presenting the work of a major summit meeting of the heads of bishops' conferences, a four-day meeting in 2019, February of 2019. You know, I asked him point blank, how, how do these guys make it past a preliminary screening when they're thinking about going through seminary, right? If you don't know how bad this stuff is. Uh, and he, he didn't quite understand the question, I don't think. There's video of this out there. I'm not going to try to quote him from memory. Uh, but I do recall that uh, after clarifying what my question meant, uh, uh, Archbishop Shakluna sort of jumped in and answered the question. Um, and I, I sort of kicked myself for letting him get away with that. I should have insisted on Cardinal Supic giving, you know, being the one giving to answer the question because yeah. I was a question for him. But hey, you know, uh, um, I, that's one of the things that reporters will do is Monday morning quarterback themselves, at least I hope. Yeah. Right? Uh, uh, <laughs> well, because it it's done. There's, done. There, there's, two, there's two questions, right? You have the, on the one hand, how does a man end up in seminary formation to become a priest at all? And, and what's the screening process there, which, which is a fair one. And the thing is that that doesn't seem like a new question because that, that was largely dealt with subsequent to the Dallas Charter and, and 2002 and the Spotlight Scandal, which was we need to have stronger psychological screenings. We need to do these other things. So not perfectly answered. By any stretch, well, I think it's a I think it's a different kind of question, though. You know, you, there's screening out abusers is one thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what about you know? Is it not a red flag? Is it not a black mark on a fellow who doesn't seem to understand how bad these things are? Because that this was the one of the things, and I think this sort of missed the. Uh, it, it's worth articulating and making explicit that uh, the the stated purpose of or one of the stated purposes of the big meeting in 2019 was to uh, raise the level of sensitivity to the gravity of uh, what uh, abuse is among yeah. the worldwide episcopate. And so my question was, how did guys who don't understand how bad this is ever become bishops in the first place? Yeah. How did they ever get into seminary? Like, isn't that a, a, a moral deficiency, just a deficiency in moral formation such that it would be, yeah. if not disqualifying, then at least, you know, significantly, hey, we we, we got to pump the brakes on this guy here. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to understand that, you know, uh, abusing children is is a bad thing. Now, right? that's, a, that's an interesting point because having gone through seminary formation myself and then having been in vocations work, uh, I don't. I don't know that there was ever any uh, specific questioning about a, a man's understand moral understanding of of 
his behavior or of the behavior of others other than what would come out in the course of formation. Uh, so there was not a, a, a moral prerequisite to, uh, excuse me, a, there was not a, a prerequisite for entrance to the seminary that involved a question about your understanding of basic morality. Uh, there was an expectation that a guy coming into the seminary would be uh, vouched for as a morally upstanding person. We want that. That's always good, right? But but there was not a, a sense of, hey, let's talk about your understanding of morality. Do you understand that this kind of behavior is morally depraved and gravely sinful? Uh, those are not questions that we were really asking. I think that's an interesting question to start and to raise. I, I like I, that. Yeah, and if I were to, to do it, I mean, I, it's just sort of, you know uh, – it's pretty easy to elicit the right sorts of answers to specific, you know, questions about specific behavior. But how how are we measuring the moral formation of guys who are who are coming in? Right, that that is a uh, a, a reform that I think is something that we need to to think about. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm thinking of some recent high profile cases uh, of you know guys who did slide under the radar uh, and got up to some very very bad things and hurt some people uh, very 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 badly. Uh, and some of the reactions of some of the bishops in those, you know, who, who had been, you know, in charge of the, the seminaries where these guys were formed and were, you know, pastorally responsible and governed, you know, res in, uh, responsible in the sense of, you know, they were the the governors of the church in the places where these uh, things happened, where the where these bad actors got up to what they got up to. And so, oh, there were no red flags, right? Uh, Bishop Rhodes was one who had uh, uh, a case. Uh, not too, too long ago. And there have been a couple of others. Uh, but, you know, th there were no red flags. I remember that sort of sticking out. And my thinking was, well, okay. Well, first of all, how how do you know? Because you're saying this, you know, within a, a couple of weeks, uh, you told us of, of having learned of this. So you've done a, a, a thorough review of the guy's whole seminary career. You've looked into the people who were responsible for his formation. You've taken that very close look at these guys. It, it, it didn't uh, it, it didn't strike me as overflowing with verisimilitude mm. uh, that, that he would have been able to put himself in a position to say with such certainty that, that uh, everything was fine, <laughs> that there were no red flags. Yeah. Right. You know, when you got a guy who has done something like that, you, 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 you toss the place, you then you go, you tooth comb the whole thing. Right. You want to look at everyone who had something to do with this guy's formation, who promoted him, who did this, who did that. Um, just as a you know, as a matter of good governance, not because you're you're uh, sure to uh, to find anything. You know, maybe maybe you yeah. don't find anything that was nefarious. Well, then you need to take a really hard look at. Uh, what you can do better, right? Yeah. Uh, I think of, you know, the, the, the National Transportation Safety Board, every time there's an accident that involves, you know, b b deaths or injuries, you know, they look at things real closely, yeah. right? And there's a report that eventually comes out. It's published, right? Right. And I think this, this is an, an interesting one because I've had this, this little conscience prick every once in a while because uh, some of these cases that have, that have been in the news of priests... Uh, 
abusing people, priests taking advantage of people. And, uh, you know, t- was it 2019 Vos Estes Lux Mundi came out? Mm-hmm. Was that 2019? Yeah, yeah, it was 2019. Yeah. Okay. So when Vos Estes came out, it introduced this new category, not only of uh, abuse of, of children, but ab- abuse even of, of adults and the idea of a vulnerable person. And a vulnerable person in, in the life of the church is, it, Vos Estes kind of leaves it vague as to what exactly is meant by a vulnerable person. But it's it's an interesting concept, and I think an important one. Well, in these last several years, there have been cases of, of priests who have, have been accused of, of things and have are guilty of it. Um, I shouldn't just say that they're, they've been accused, they're, they're guilty. Well, there are at least two priests that I can think of uh, who I knew in seminary. Um, guys who who studied who were not in my class, uh, but who were in the seminary at the same time that, that I was. And I read the stories and I, I go back in my mind and I start to think, all right, wh- what did I know about those guys? What did I see? And the the answer that, that you just spoke about, there were no red flags, kind of keeps coming to mind. I, I couldn't have identified this as a red flag, but now reading the story, hearing with the details of things that they did and or what they're at least accused of, you start to go, oh, you know, this thing, this guy said this one thing one time, or I remember that this was kind of the the general behavior. I wonder if that was an indicator that I didn't recognize at the time. So I go back and I, I, I do that little recognition piece. Did, 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 I, did I see it? But then the other part of it is, I wonder sometimes, is it not just a question of training, but of what we do after we're trained? So, for example, these guys go, and I had the same training as them, but I've not done the same things, right? <laughs> I've not done any of that stuff. So, it can't just be a question of training to me then. Uh, so, seminary training, seminary formation can do an awful lot, and that's why the screening is important, and, and I don't discount any of that. But then there's also got to be that that personal part of, as, as a priest, how are you supervised? What do you do? And uh, it could be that in seminary, there were no red flags, but in early ministry and first parish assignment, second parish assignment, were there red flags subsequent to that formation? And if we're only looking back at their time in seminary, no red flags, are we too easily washing our hands and not saying that there's, see, I think the next part of governance, a man in seminary is under the governance of, of the rector of the seminary. Uh, that's why when, when the ordination comes around, the, the question is, do you know him to be worthy? And after inquiry among the Christian people, and those responsible, I testify that he is worthy, right? Then it's the bishop who takes charge from there on out in a more direct way. There were no red flags in seminary, but what about in that first assignment? What about in their in their ministry? It's, uh, look, it's a balancing act, and there is no perfect solution to this. There's no silver bullet, uh, and there are practical human realities. You can't have a society that is built on uh, constant oversight, all right? Um, you know, The communists have tried real hard. They did, right? <laughs> uh, even uh, organizations that, uh, you know, that deal with people who have to handle sensitive secrets who are exposed to all sorts of uh, very bad and unsavory things tend to, you know, have to check in every once in a while with uh, people who are doing psychological evaluation, um, you know, whether it's, you know, FBI agents or intelligence officers who have to go in and, you know, 
uh, answer questions periodically just as a matter of course, you know, right. oh, you've got your six-month review coming up or whatever. And part of that is a psych review. Part of that is, you know, they're straightforward questions that they have to ask that they don't expect to be, you know, part of an investigation. Uh, but, you know, they want it on the record that somebody answered a question, you know, have, have you sold secrets to our, to the enemies of our country or whatever, right? Uh, they, they don't expect anyone to say, oh, now that you mention it, right? <laughs> uh, but you've, you know, you've, you, you've done that thing. But then, uh, look, uh, th those are outfits, uh, places like the FBI, right? That that are, are filled with people who have a job to do, mm. uh, who are not. Uh, you know, it it, it it it's a very different dynamic, right? Um, and uh, not at all. Uh, not at all is too strong, uh, but one would hope more dissimilar to, you know, the life of the society of secular priests in mm. a, a given diocese, right? Uh, now, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we do need to take a hard look at clerical culture. This is something that I've written about uh, quite a bit. Um, but y y you want to realize that the long term, you know, the end goal, what, what does a healthy culture look like uh, is, uh, and how do we get there? You know, th those are questions that do have to be balanced, uh, against, you know, the need for minimal functionality in the short and, and immediate terms. Right. Um, and I tend to think that, uh, absent a groundswell of dissatisfaction with the culture, you know, given expression uh, that that comes from uh, the faithful, sure, uh, but also the clerical rank and file. Um, it's not likely that we're going to see very much. Uh, in the way of uh, sustained and effective cultural reform efforts, um, you know, and that's not to take a dismal or a cynical view of the business, right? Um, it's not because people are necessarily, you know, bad actors that we know that there are bad actors, right? But the question, where do we put our resources? You know, yeah. that, that is something that, uh, you know, requires some time, you know, significant discernment. And uh, sometimes the kind of help in discernment that one needs is more pointed and, and, uh, 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 sustained than at other times. Well, this, this is an area where I think that help in discernment is, is so important. Um, 
if there's been any criticism that seems fair against the church, uh, there's lots of criticism that seems fair uh, about, about how we do things in the church. But I think one in particular is that uh, it's that question, how, how can we expect the church to, to police herself? How can we expect the bishops to actually keep an eye on, on their own priests and to, to do these things? Um, there's got to be some some assistance because the bishops are are also not by training uh, taught how to be investigators and uh, and police. Just nor, are, nor are many of the people who end up conducting investigations for the bishops, right? right. Uh, and one of the things that you'll very frequently hear people, and this is true in any diocese, in any chancery around the world, including that very big, very old chancery on the other side of the Tiber, uh, I'm talking about Rome, folks, in <laughs> case you, you, you hadn't caught that. Um, and that's what that's what the Roman Curia is, by the way. It's important that we demystify some of this, right? It's a very big, very old chancery. It's a chancery that's existed, uh, well, it's existed in some form or another ever since St. Peter sort of looked over his shoulder and said, somebody take a letter, right? That's how long it's been around. Right. Um, and uh, it, it has its own ways of doing things, but it n has never existed in order to solve all of the church's problems, right? Uh, or, or even most of them. Uh, and and that's, that's good, uh, I think, uh, because we, we do like for things to be dealt with uh, on the local level as much as possible, right? Mm -hmm. This is true in, in, every, uh, in every area of life and in, in, every, um, in every perfect society. Now, there's a term from, uh, from political philosophy that, uh, yeah. uh, that folks— uh, Going back to Robert Bellarmine there. Yeah, you know, the, 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 the societas perfecta is the perfect society. It doesn't mean that a society is unblemished, that it has nothing wrong with it, that it's perfect in the sense of, uh, 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 well, the colloquial sense that in which we use it today, right? But that it is uh, fully formed fully fledged it has all of the the powers it has the it possesses of its own the wherewithal to govern itself right that's all it means how well it does that at any given time is another matter entirely and here i'd say by the way that that uh, you know one of the things that uh, i tell my students sometimes is that if you're reading the acts of the apostles as a as though it were a how to manual of good governance you're you're not paying close attention. Yeah. Well, this is this is one of the things that I think the guys at the pillar get get quite right as canon lawyers they're always talking about the idea that there's there there's a, a process in place. There's law in place to to help us to govern and how often is that law actually followed? And how in many cases where, the, where there's been scandal, whether it's about clerical sexual abuse or financial scandals or, or any number of other things, part of the challenge is that the law itself that exists, so that the societa perfecta, all the things are necessary for a, a society to function are there, but either they're being disobeyed uh, or being, being misused or in this case ignored. Yeah, uh, and th there's a lot to say to that, right? Uh, it, I uh, recall the, uh, I believe it was the, was it the Roman general Gaius Marius, uh, who was, uh, I'll have to look this up uh, later on, but I think it was. You know more about Roman history uh, than yeah, I do, for sure. Uh, who was 
uh, in command of an army, that, a Roman army that was besieging a Sicilian city, I believe it was Messina, and had uh, uh, demanded the surrender of the city. Right, and they said, "Well, we, we, by ancient law, we're not allowed to surrender. We have to consult with the the, the Senate before we can do this. Uh, uh, we're good allies, and we we want to keep to the rules that we've and to the agreements that we've made." And his his quip was, uh, "Do not quote laws to men who carry swords." Ooh, <laughs> I like that quote. That's fantastic. Um, there is a sort of a paper way of doing things, right? Mm. Um, and in a healthy society, there's going to be some pretty, you know, there's going to be deviation from the way things are supposed to work on paper, right? And you, when you're having, you know, good oversight that isn't too intrusive uh, or, or too meddling, but that does manage to keep an eye on things, you're going to say, oh, okay, well, I see that you didn't do it this way. There's a common sense element to it, right? And and that's all fine, but at the same time, yes, I think you're quite right that there is a, a you know well how many of these bad things that we now know did happen would not have happened, or would have been you know far more readily manageable uh, if we just you know followed our own law. Yeah. Um, now. When there is an investigation, right, and it turns out, oh, no, no no laws were broken, well, then maybe you need to have a look at your laws because – It you seems know, clear that something immoral happened, happened something right? sinful so, happened, so, something but, criminal even. You know, do, do, and by have a look at, that doesn't necessarily mean rewrite them, but it does mean, well, how are we, how are we investigating things? How are we applying these? What can we do to uh, reduce – the temptation to abuse the law in this way yeah. to, you know, is it written in a way that actively encourages this sort of behavior, you know, and what, what, what do we do then? Um, how do we close the, the, the loopholes where we need to, how do we tighten up on the things that need tightening up mm. without, uh, you know, causing trouble elsewhere and down the road. Right. Uh, but it, 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 look, governance is hard. All right. And, uh, it's messy, you know, um, it, it, ask any ask any mechanic who's you know who who works on machines you know that uh, you know actually have to do things right um, have to perform at a certain level over time it's it's not easy yeah. to keep them running and sometimes you need to rebuild the engine and eventually they do get worn down and you know need to be well it seems replaced. like issues of governance have have been in many ways, the driving force of, of a lot of the the Catholic news that's not just about events that happened in your diocese or something like that, but issues of governance are the things that kind of globally are impacting the church right now. Uh, and I, I think it, it, I wonder sometimes, do, do those who are involved in Catholic media, 
in particular in the journalistic area of trying to report the news, feel sometimes like they're bogged down. Have you, did you ever feel that? I mean, you wrote a, uh, your book, Into the Storm, chronicles the, the articles that you wrote primarily about the, the issues surrounding not just McCarrick, but other, other stories of abuse scandals. Um, and then we have uh, everything that's going on right now with the, the trial in, in the Vatican uh, over finances. And the the, scan, the financial scandals that are present there, uh, does it ever feel like the it's it's all scandal driven, uh, but not in the not in the National Enquirer sense, not in the the tabloid sense, but like real, genuine scandals. But there's there's also other news that we need to to be able to talk about. That's not just uh, the scandal, and yet it's it's so present. Yeah, um, did I ever feel bogged down in it? Um, I don't. I don't think so, uh, if I understand what you mean by it. Uh, now, I will say that, you know, uh, um, I'm not going to put too fine a point on this, Father Sam. Uh, you know, I, I, I report on Parish Bingo Night if that was the story, you know, and I'd be happy to do it. So, you know, uh, why don't you uh, church leaders uh, stop doing stupid, evil stuff? And I will stop reporting on it. I like that idea. It's it's that simple. Yeah. You know. Um, now, people are not going to stop doing stupid, evil stuff because we're broken. Mm. Okay? There is no making all of this go away. But if we were to reform our institutions in a way that well, was more cognizant of and accounted for that basic fact of human nature? Can we maybe stop pretending as though it's possible to make, you know, original sin disappear when we're on this side of the celestial Jerusalem? Well, at the same time, understanding that it is possible to expect people to be competent and, you know, competent both morally and sort of professionally and mechanically and to, mm. to know how to do things and to do them, right? Yeah. Um, it, that sounds pretty basic, but it's pretty obvious that we're, you know, we've had some pretty big failures as far as those things are concerned over the, 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 yeah. the past several years. Uh, I'm glad that all of this is coming to light, you know, uh, and I think hard as it is, uh, everyone should be if it, yeah. you know, I, I do know that, you know, it's, it, it's very, very hard for lots of people who do care very deeply about the church to continue to read these things and uh, to read about them. Um, and, you know, um, I said to a friend of mine, they can't have our Christmas cheer, no sir, no way, right? <laughs> uh, uh, don't... Uh, there's another side to it. There's the Belloc quatrain, right? Wherever the Catholic sun doth shine. Uh, there's love and laughter and good red wine. At least I've always heard it so. I also like Benedict his. Benedicamus Domino, right? Uh, <laughs> I, I like his other one, which is we, that. Oh, yes. I know that the church must be true because no other institution could be run with such knavish imbecility and survive a fortnight. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so so you've got both of those from the same guy. Yeah. And that, 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 that's, that's very important, I think, right? Well, and um, that idea that you, that you just mentioned about the, these things coming to light. Um, even even the things that are scandalous and and being glad about it, that is a sentiment that I have come to share very much, uh, especially in the last several years. 
I started seminary and, uh, I think at the end of my first week of seminary or the, the end of my second week of seminary was 9-11, uh, which was then followed up by uh, all of the 2002 abuse scandal stories. And so that was my whole first year of, of seminary formation. And I remember very distinctly feeling like the, just the world was against us, especially uh, being a seminarian. It just felt like everything was, was now stacked against me. Um, and it felt sometimes like the reporters who were doing the reporting were doing it out of animosity for the church. Now, this was also an 18-year-old me, right? So keep in mind, I was, I, was not a, I was not yet an adult. I did not have the understanding of the world that I have now. Reading those stories was, it felt very much like an attack. But as time went on, I started to realize, no, it's not always an attack. But there was, um, in particular... And I'll uh, I'll confess this one here on, on the air. <laughs> in particular, the the one that I struggled with was not the secular press. I could I could handle the secular press having a, an axe to grind with the church. I, I kind of expected it, and in a certain way, I was I was kind of excited about the idea of being persecuted. That seemed like it would be fun. Well, you, uh, you, you, that's where the eighteen year old comes out. Yeah, right? exactly. It's like I'm <laughs> I'm young and you know hot blooded. Let's and, go. And, and, and spoiling for a fight. And, right. You know, but then it was it was reading uh, John Allen as a, a Catholic reporter, and and the things that he was writing, uh, and I would get frustrated saying, "How can this guy write for uh, claiming that he's he's a Catholic and, and write this stuff? It seems terrible, and he must he must really be just one of those Catholics who doesn't really love the church at all." Well, a few years later, I met the man. And I met him in passing. I, I would not say that that uh, I know John Allen. That would be completely false. <laughs> he would have no idea who I am if I were to mention – if you were to mention my name to him, if I were to mention my name, he would just look at me kind of blankly. Sam who? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He has no clue who I am. But I remember I, I met him and he was giving a talk to, uh, to seminarians and I got to hear him speak. And I realized this is a man who loves the church and who does what he does because he loves the church. And I started to read – his stuff and other other pieces written by some of these Catholic outlets. And I started to realize that there's a great service that's being provided. And then you go back and you realize, well, the fourth estate has always provided that service. It's not because they don't like America or because they don't like a government or a person. It's because they actually do very much like America, this person, or in the case of Catholic media, they love the church. They love the Catholic faith, and there's a need to make sure that what we're trying to do as a Catholic church to promote the gospel, to save souls, that has to continue. But it can't continue if these bad things are happening, if those who are charged with proclaiming the gospel are out there doing these horrible things. And so to report on it is not an act of infidelity or disloyalty. To, to report on these things is to call the church to deeper conversion. And if the priests won't do it, if the bishops won't do it, then the fourth estate has to do it. We need the, we need the Catholic media to do it. Uh, I think you're quite right. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a bit of a plug or a push uh, in a minute for, for all of that. Uh, but I should say that I do know John Allen. Uh, uh, he is a friend of many years. And uh, I, I think that you're, you're right about him in terms of where you came around to. Uh, 
and uh, his Crux outfit is uh, outstanding. Is, is is really the you know uh, just outstanding. You know, yeah. Um, and uh, the because uh, they do the news, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's that's what they do. They do the news. Um, and, and Catholic news is kind of niche, right? There, there, there's not a whole lot here for for somebody who's not Catholic to to get super excited about when you're getting into some of the the nitty gritty of this papal document came out or this disciplinary thing has has been raised. Not many people outside the church are going to care all that much about it. But it's kind of fascinating when you do start to read it, and when you realize that these are things that are are aimed at helping. Helping the church, helping Catholics, helping priests, helping laity to fully live out the gospel and to to really live according to, to the call that God has given to them. Uh, I would hope so, uh, right? Um, but I would also well, the, See, there have, I, there's I, been I, some I, bad law too. There have been there have been bad policies promulgated, uh, either at a local diocesan level or at a at an international uh, ecclesial level from the Roman Curia. Sure, that raise serious questions. And again, those are things too that need to be reported. So there's the there's the scandal part of the reporting, which which might make the big headlines and and get a lot of people reading. But then there's the the, the nitty gritty other stuff that gets in there too that needs to be reported on and discussed. Um, well, there were two things that you mentioned earlier that I I, I, I want to get back to them before we get away, and they yeah. they they are either interwoven with or dovetail with where you are now. Uh, one is uh, that a sense that uh, both in the secular press and in the Catholic media uh, you had back in seminary, right, of of animosity, right. Um, well. Uh, I'm sure that sometimes it was there, right? And it, within the Catholic press, outfits have editorial lines and sometimes they have agendas. Now, I would also enter a parenthetical observation here, which is that there's a difference between an agenda and an editorial line. And it's one that needs to you know, be bright and clear to people who are reading and uh, consuming the news, as it were, right? Uh but one of the things that I always say is, so what? Mm. Uh, yes, the church has enemies. Always has. Always has. Uh, we don't need to give them a stick to hit us with. Very good point. <laughs> and that's what the clerical and hierarchical leadership of the church has done with too many of these stories, you know, and not just the things that are dealing with sexual abuse, right, which is just a particularly egregious form uh, and uh, uh, kind of story. Uh, but the financial stuff, the run of the mill, you know, the stuff that Nobody really cares about outside of the church and outside of the church in a particular area, right? Uh, lo good local Catholic journalism, I think, is something that we've lost as well, right? Uh, or, uh, you know, do we have any independent Catholic outfits? Uh, do we and that are working, you know, that are local? 
right? Mm. Who's, who's, whose beat is the local news beat? Uh, I don't want to say universally and absolutely no, uh, but I think that a sign of a healthy, a healthy society, a healthy polity, right, uh, is that there's enough interest in the work of the people serving the watchdog function mm. uh, to sustain them. It seems and like we've seen you know the and this is true across the board right it, it it's something that's happening all throughout our society that local newspapers and i'm not talking about catholic newspapers here only or even particularly uh lo local media are having a hard time you know whether they're newspapers radio stations uh you know what 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 have you uh, lots of them are closing it's tough to keep them going it has been for a long time um, and they become less and less local as a result because you have fewer people so on the ground talking about this this is the thing yep. this is the story that's breaking here in this town it's more you get more national headlines because that's what fills the pages because they don't have the personnel to take care of the local stuff. I think look at a lot of your diocesan newspapers and they're basically not newspapers, but newsletters. Here's the stuff that happened as self-reported by the place where it happened. We had this event um, or here's the... Yeah. And a good time was had by all. Well, who says? You know, the guys who organized it? You know, right. exactly. I, uh, uh, I want to know what the people who were there had to say about it, you know. Um, how many people were there, you know. Uh, okay, well, there were over 400 people who attended the thing. Well, why'd you book a venue for 5,000, you know? <laughs> yes. Uh, what, what what sort of, you know, what's, what's going on there? It sort of reminds me of the, you know, the, the, the claim that, you know, 20 million people participated in uh, the year of mercy in Rome, right? A and you're going to, no, no, they didn't. Um, you know, uh, y and you, you don't get to, to say that they did. Saying does not make it so. You know, you, you had uh, hoteliers and restaurateurs and a whole bunch of people saying that it had been a dead year, mm. you know. Uh, and, and well, the, eventually, I think the dicastery for the, or the, I guess at the time it was the Pontifical Council for the new evangelization that was responsible for the effort. Uh, you know, that, that said, uh, well, we we uh, you know extrapolated this number. We used a multiplier, and you're going, okay, well, great, but uh, what were you multiplying what, by? Yeah, you know, <laughs> what, 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 how'd you how'd you get? Did you have a guy out? You know, doing his was he using his clicker? What was the story? What counted as participating? What was an event? You know, did did each guy, each step that each individual took along, you know, the the the, the pilgrim pathway count as one discrete participation? You know, how do you get to this number? Because you right. got people who were, you know, the ones who were supposed to be taking care of every. It was a dead year for tourism in general, right? So what what what's the story? here uh you know uh it's a you increased by a factor of 10 you know there weren't that many people spending a night in rome in over the course of the the the, the right the, this you know particular special jubilee year um and fine you know uh but what why why fudge on stuff where you don't have to you know, um, you know, sometimes you think somebody, you know, 
you write up a press release and you you hand it to the guy who needs to sign off on it, and you know he looks at it and he goes, uh, "Okay, but where are you know where where are the fudgings? Where are the lies? Where are the half truths? You know, yeah. there's 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 not enough in here. No, that's a terrible. Uh, but see, I think uh, it would be a lot more cynic <laughs> in me, you know, coming out a little bit there. But uh, but but one does wonder. You know? I think it'd be a lot more interesting if you had more more stories from the church where it was we we decided to come up with this effort. Uh, we decided to put this thing together. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna encourage more people to uh, to come to confession, and they they put out the story, and, and so we did these things, and uh, in in all of that, uh, we got this kind of a response. We were hoping though for many more. Uh, or we're going to do things differently with uh, religious education. We were hoping that uh, all the parishes would be able to, to do it this way. And uh, here's the things that, that worked really well. But then uh, here's the things that we hoped would happen that didn't happen at all. Here's, here's where we just missed the boat. Yeah. Can and we do the, the after action? Yeah. Report? I think that would actually be really it, it interesting. Would be, it, it, it would be helpful to people, right? Well, because if you do the after action report and you say, this is the stuff that didn't work, instead of thinking – all right, well, let's try, let's just keep trying to do the thing that didn't work. Maybe we would come up with a new idea. Hey, this, all right, you tried doing this thing and my place didn't try it. Uh, now that I know that it didn't work for you, I'm not going to try it here. Or let, I, let me try I, a different I, idea. I think I see how I might be able to make this work in my place if I tweak this thing. Or ah, I understand why it didn't work there. I could use this. It's just it wasn't that the idea was bad. It was that it was the the wrong context for it. But I think it yeah. might work over here. You can at least go into those sorts of things with your eyes open a little more, right? right. But instead, everything absolutely must be a smashing success all the time. Right. And and you go, well, what are you so afraid of? There's a virtue in touting our failures as long as they're not moral failures. <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, I, um, you know, we, we uh, tout our moral failures only in the confessional, right? <laughs> but like, let's talk about the things that we didn't do well, uh, especially when it's like there's no danger. If I'm not talking about it, like I, I allowed somebody who is morally evil to continue doing moral evil. Uh, well, that's that's one thing. But if if it's a, I thought I would I would plan an event and I thought it would be really successful and it, it ended up being an, an enormous flop. Um, we might want to talk about those things. And then actually, if we start to realize that not everything is always a smashing success, not everything is always so perfect, um, it, it can help us to confront the imperfection that's in front of us. I think we run away from the imperfection because we're so convinced that everything always has to be perfect. So we run away from the moral imperfection. We can't talk about that. We got, we got to keep it under wraps or something. And that's what causes scandal. And that's what makes it infinitely worse. If you if you can get used to talking about the things that aren't moral failings but are failings, this event didn't work. This effort didn't work. We ended up running up a huge debt, or nobody liked this, or <laughs> whatever it was. Like then maybe we can have more courage to talk about the the darker things that need to be talked about, that need to be brought to light. I, I think you're quite right. Uh, and hearing you talk, and we're both baseball fans, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, uh, although, you know, you you root for the Mets, but... Uh, quite I, proudly. I'm, I'm not going to hold that against you. <laughs> Nobody, that. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> um, I'm not a Yankee fan, by the way, folks. I root for the San Francisco Giants, and there are family reasons for that as well. See, my dad growing up was a Giants fan, and uh, when, they, when they moved to San Francisco... When 
they moved out west, he uh, he stayed with the team, and uh, so I grew up uh, understanding that uh, the the right and proper baseball team to root for was the Giants. Which uh, <laughs> is right and just. It, it, <laughs> Very dignified use to mest. The but listening to you talk about that uh, made me think of you know what what did coaches used to say right? Don't be afraid of the ball. Right, and you know lots of guys until you got hit in the mouth with a ball and suddenly realized oh this didn't kill me. Right. You, I'm okay. Yeah, you you, you 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 take one, and you, maybe you come away with a bloody lip or a shiner, or you know what have you, right? Or you you know if you take one that's been hit real hard, you may end up with uh, you know some train tracks on the skin. Uh, but you're not usually dead or even seriously hurt, and it's just oh that bruised. But you know what? It, it, it wasn't as bad as I thought, right? And one, I'll learn what to do next time to uh, to field that treacherous ground ball. Uh, I'll, I'll know that I can put my body in front of it and that it's not going to hurt me, right? I know that even if it does hurt, I'm going to survive. Uh, and, and those are all important lessons to learn. And it, from a fan's perspective, when you see your guy out on the field commit an error, especially if it's a mental error, does something he shouldn't have done, and then talks about it afterwards and takes the blame. You love that guy just that much more. Yep, that, you sure that becomes do. your player from then on. If if we would have the courage as a church to, to talk about those things too, uh, then some of the things that come out as as scandal would be, I think, much easier to digest, much easier to to deal with. There's a thing that. I've been an idea that I've been kicking around for years and years. I'm looking at you, looking at the clock, and thinking I may not have time to delve all the way into this. But Good. if I've got a, you got a minute, yeah, all right. Um, it, I don't know exactly how to put it, uh, and I've thought about putting it variously through the years, right? But I'm going to say it this way this time, uh, and uh, well. There you have it, right? This is me not being afraid of the ball, uh, I hope. Um, we have, in terms of our, our the way that we form people, uh, and I don't mean the way that we form people uh, elected or, or prospectively so for service, you know, uh, as clergy, right? So uh, I'm talking about the way that we Catholics form each other, and we hope that we do, right? Um uh, over the years uh, of my life, certainly for as long as I've been alive, uh, there has been a tendency in some circles, and I think it, it, it's discernible, right, to think that uh, we can we can skip the cardinal virtues, mm. right? Um, but the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, these inform the cardinal virtues, but they can't replace them. They don't supplant them, right? So if you don't have the cardinal virtues, at least, you know, in nuce, right, um, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing human that can receive the supernatural aid of grace in the way that the theological virtues are, are, are meant to be mm. culture, inculcated and fostered, right? Um, 
said simply, uh, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance, right? If you don't have those, then faith, hope, and charity aren't going to save you in terms of your ability to uh, achieve human flourishing, right? They, they, they will save your soul. They're gifts of God. They're effective. Uh, don't get me wrong, but they're, you know, they're not going to make you good at being human. Right. It's very true. It's very true. Um, I've got three questions for you. The first one, in your reporting and, and in the work that you've done, uh, especially dealing with with scandal, uh, you see varying levels of, of scandal, various things that are happening. And so various violations of the moral law, of ecclesiastical law, of civil law, et cetera. In the reporting, though, your average reader might pick up something, scroll through an article, and it's harder to differentiate between those things. I'm thinking in particular right now of uh, two big news items that have, that have come up recently. Uh, one, the laicization of Frank Pavone, uh, Priest for Life, and uh, his laicization. And one of the things that has come from that has been uh, kind of an outcry of, well, why this priest and not these other priests who have done these things? Um, or these other priests who have a similar media following or, or presence who have done these things. Uh, and kind of right alongside it, the big scandal with Father Mike, Marco Rupnik. Um, and you have then a, a priest on the one hand whose uh, partisan politics and things like that got him into a lot of trouble and his disobedience to his bishop are the reasons for his, for his dismissal from the clerical state. And then you have a, a priest who sexually and psychologically abused people, adults, and spiritually, and, and spiritually abused them, uh, was, was excommunicated. Was, yeah, had, had, was, had his excommunication, lates intensiae, declared by the competent Roman office, you know, and, and then what? He pinky swore that he was really, really sorry, and right. so they lifted the excommunication, and nobody and, was ever the wiser. And then let him preach to the Roman curia. And uh, not then. It didn't. They didn't. And then let him preach to the Roman curia. He preached to the Roman curia. Was invited to preach to the Roman curia um, in March of 2020. Now the Jesuits themselves, you know, they didn't advertise this in the timeline that they put out, uh, but, uh, to their, to their credit, they included it. Right. So the judges vote on the factual matter mm -hmm. in January, I believe of 2020. Uh, so yeah, he did the thing that he's accused of doing, right. He, 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 absolved an accomplice. An accomplice to what? To a sin against the sixth commandment, which is church speak for sexual misbehavior. All right. So he did that thing. The judges decide, right? They sit on their sentence until about May, I think. Now, we can go and check this in the notes, but it's, yeah. good enough. it's close enough for government work, right? So sometime between January, the factual vote, and May, this guy got invited to preach to the, 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 the Roman Curia. So May, the sentence is handed down. It's not that he got invited to, to preach that afterwards. But, you know, um, it's, 
it's difficult for folks out in the real world to understand how nobody thought to maybe pick up a phone and say, hey, you got a problem with this guy when you hear about that? It's not, look, I'm just, I'm telling you, eh. there are ways for the kind of information that is needful uh, to, to find its way to the, the right people. Yeah. Okay. So you have these two situations where there's a guy who's very clearly guilty of, of a grave sin, grave canonical crime has actually been excommunicated and then is reinstated given all these things and, and nobody says anything and it's it's not known at all compared to a, a priest who was disobedient to his bishop. Now, I'm not suggesting that disobedience to a bishop is is permissible or anything like that, but you have these two these two cases and outside looking in, it looks like two priests simply treated very differently. The reality is, as it, it's more complicated, you're dealing with two different types of canonical processes. You're dealing with two different sets of, of circumstances and two different reasons that these things were, were brought up. Um, and yet, to to your average person, I think this this looks like uh, inconsistent justice. It looks like inconsistent application of law. And... Again, if if we can get I think it, it looks like an egregious double standard, and that you know makes a make, makes the the whole system of Roman or Vatican justice appear utterly in uh, incredible, uh, untrustworthy, and I, I understand why people feel that way, right? I, it, from the outside looking in, that's what it looks like. And if you've created a situation now in which, well, we need to explain to people why it isn't this way. Well, first of all, in the Rupnik case, it, it, it looks, you know, real bad. And we're getting zero explanation that, you know, is worth the name from uh, the, the sources. Everyone will tell you, oh, we didn't know about it. Uh, you know, we only found out about this very recently. The, the, you know, the, the cardinal vicar of Rome only found out about this very recently when it was his auxiliary who went to Slovenia and uncovered the allegations in 2019. You know, how, how many things have to go wrong in order for that to be the case? You know? Yeah. Um in the case, you know, in the case of Father Pavone, you know, I don't know what exactly he did, uh, what they found him guilty of. Uh, you know, I don't know about his relationship with his ordinary. I don't know for sure who his ordinary is. You know, this is one of those things. That it's, it's, it's Amarillo, it, Texas. It seems like it was it's Amarillo yeah. and, and Bishop Zurich, right? Yeah. So, you know. Um, that was an historical present that I was speaking, and I should have been should have been clear about that, right? You know, so for years this was an issue, right? Well, um, but now, to, to that point, like you've got a celebrity, two celebrity priests, essentially. Why? Um, why is all? Why have all? Why is all of this being conducted? Uh, you know, under any official secrecy whatsoever. Why not have trials that are that are meaningfully public in the church? Why not publish the results of investigations that we do so that people can scrutinize them? If we say that justice is a public good, and it, we do say so, and rightly so, because it is, then let's stop 
treating it as a private matter for all intents and purposes, right? At some point, it becomes a farce. You've answered the question without me even having to ask it, which was going to be exactly this idea of why not make this all public? What What is the problem? Why is it that we have to do these things so secretly? Because the effect is that people don't know the full story of, of what the process is. They don't know the administration of justice, which makes that exact point that you made, that the legal apparatus and the, the administration of justice out of the Holy See appears to be a farce, and it shouldn't. This should be something that can be trusted. This should be something that, that uh, is, is of, of integrity. But so often, it, with, with the lack of transparency, with the fact that this is all done kind of behind closed doors with nobody ever, ever knowing anything, we end up shrugging our shoulders yeah, relatively and, confused. And if people have a reasonably, you know, high, you know, a, a, a tolerably high degree of confidence in the ability of those in church government to provide justice, right? Then it, it's not going to be, uh, you know, necessary for the people who are performing the watchdog function in the society that is the church uh, to, you know, publicize absolutely everything. Um, it will never be possible to do so. It will never be practicable to do so. It would, you know, not, I think, serve uh, uh, anyone if it, you know, if we were shouting to the, you know, from the rooftops every single thing that happens, you know, uh, it, it, it's, it's a practical impossibility. You look around, right. you know, how many, how many times do we read about, you know, uh, uh, b b you know, a corruption investigation in, in, in the civil sphere, uh, whether it's, you know, graft, abuse of power, what have you, right? Um, you know, how many times does a guy like Harvey Weinstein go up for what he did, you know, uh, and face criminal consequences as a result versus how many times does it actually get reported on? Now, in the one case, if it's Harvey Weinstein, it's going to be reported on because that's a big deal. And this guy, you know, did some pretty horrible things apparently and got away with, uh, got away with doing them for a lot of years and lots of people knew. That's a story. You know, that is a legitimate journalistic focus of attention. It's in the public interest, right? Now, is it going to be amenable to uh, uh, salacious treatment? Well, sure, of course it is, right? Um, but, you know, it's it simply isn't the case that uh, everything it is, but if we can count on the justice system to do its work, uh, and if we can count on the news media to be properly judicious in the way that story selection happens, um, then you know we can not have to worry about everyone's dirty laundry being aired all over the world all the time. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, but uh, you can't have it 
both ways. Justice cannot be right. a public good and also secret in its conduct. Right. Okay. Um, it it just doesn't work. Now, not, public doesn't mean published. You know. Uh, uh, willy-nilly without criteria. There is a, a certain degree of, you know, uh, you know public interest, uh, right? A and that needs to be balanced against, you know, the, the, the rights of people not to have details of their lives that are unrelated to the public interest broadcast publicly. Right. Uh, but we we know that we can do a tolerably good job of balancing uh, you know, these things because we have. Well, you, you, I think you also have the, the issue of, of that justice being published in a, in a certain way. Um, but to also explain that justice has been carried out. Um, let's take something where it's not a – let's call it a career ender. And that's that's a, a misnomer. It's not a, it's not fully fair, uh, but a, a priest does something that he shouldn't do. Uh, it's imprudent. But let's say it's maybe not a, a canonical crime. Uh, oh yeah, it could, it could even have been wrong. It could have been you know morally wrong. I mean, it could have been stupid. It could have been sinful in some yeah. way or to and some it requires degree. some discipline. But this is not the kind of thing that would preclude him from continuing on as a priest. Right, a priest uh, publicly had an argument with uh, with a parishioner uh, in the church, and everybody knows about it. And there needs to be some kind of discipline to suggest that he shouldn't do that anymore. Right? There's a way to say yes, he's been disciplined. Here's the record uh, that that he's been disciplined, or, or here's the consequence of of his action that he's he's got to uh, be aware of. And we're going to say it publicly. We're going to we're going to acknowledge that there's this thing that he now has to do. Um, this does not preclude him from functioning as a priest entirely, uh, just in the way that if you had a public argument with your manager uh, at work, uh, it wouldn't preclude you from ever having a job ever anywhere. You've got to go through some discipline. You've got to do something. Um, but we also, justice is meant to rehabilitate. And so we, we want to get this person back to where they're supposed to be. There are some things we know that preclude someone from ever functioning as a priest ever again, but it's the public notion of, of that justice and that discipline that can help us to understand the difference. Because the other part is that if a, if a priest has a complaint, you know, the, the big fear for a lot of priests, and this came out in the, uh, the CUA study, Catholic University did a study about the, the life and health of priests recently and their relationship with their bishops, uh, which is a whole other thing. We don't, I don't think we've got time to talk about that, but oh my goodness. Uh, you, 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 I'll, I'll keep going as long as the checks keep coming, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, he, He's not paying me anything. The, <laughs> the CUA study uh, suggests that, that a majority of priests don't trust their bishops. And, and that an even higher majority of priests don't trust the bishops as a, as a body. That's not a good thing for the, for the life of the church. But why is it? Well, it's because there's not really a differentiation or one reason, excuse me. It's not the only reason, but one, one reason is that there's not really a differentiation in uh, the way that a complaint might come in. Somebody might not like the way that a priest uh, gave his homily and write a letter to, to complain to the bishop. Um, but, what we'll hear is that there, there's, there were complaints against you, and that could mean that we were accused of some horrible thing. Um, and if we don't know what the justice is going to be, 
uh, or, or how a process might unfold, then you're going to have a lot of priests who are living more in fear than anything else. Because they don't, they don't know what they're supposed to do. And the difference between being accused of uh, sexual abuse or, or spiritual abuse or something like that and uh, having somebody say, I didn't like Father's homily, uh, if that's not a, a, a clear distinction for us or if there's not a, a clear policy or, or procedure for how that's going to be dealt with or such things are going to be handled, you end up with a, a lack of trust within the, within the clergy. Yeah, it's been one of the most frustrating things to observe, right? And it is uh, related to the way that, uh, uh, well, um, you know, uh, bishops still to this day occasionally will see fit to deal with uh, uh, people. Uh, you know, they used to deal with uh, priests who were abusers of, of minors uh, by sending them off to uh, uh, treatment facilities where they'd get a clean bill of health and returned, right? Uh, folks who have trouble with, uh, with, with people who are no longer legal minors but are now legal adults uh, will sometimes to this day, still come in for similar treatment, right? Mm. Uh, that's certainly, it, it, it's bad for the faithful. It's, it's a bad policy. Um, and and it's, it's bad for the priests involved. It's bad for the clerical and hierarchical leadership culture in the church. Uh, and it's unfair to the people uh, who go to those facilities for the kinds of treatment that the facilities are are supposed to be giving, right? A guy who has, a, you know, a problem with drug dependency or alcoholism is legitimately sick and can and should get the help that he needs in order to, you know, uh, learn to deal with his issues and get back. A fellow could have uh, mental health issues that really need some uh, significant attention, uh, as you know, on an inpatient basis, uh, doesn't uh, deserve to be thrown into the same box with the people who are, who are moral monsters, right? Um and so mere association with a place uh, and a kind of right. treatment suddenly becomes a, a, a thing. Same way, well, there were complaints, you know. Well, all right, what sort of complaints? Who's complaining? About what? You know, uh, either you can tell me these things or I'm just going to go back to work over here and not care. Right. You know, uh, there have been complaints. That, that, that's, you know, really in keeping with the, the, the paranoid style of government, right? Yeah. It's like something pulled right out of the Soviet playbook, you know? Uh, yeah. there, some some there anonymous person. So have to. <laughs> some anonymous person has, has lodged a complaint, but what was the complaint? Who, who was it? What's the right of defense that I have here? These are, these are all things that come up that, yeah, I think become, become really difficult. All right. Now, in 2021, you wrote uh, a book called Reading the News Without Losing Your Faith. And given your, your history of reporting that very same news and often the really discouraging news and the, and the difficult stuff, um, in the end, how do you, how do you keep to, to your faith? How do you keep uh, your head up and, and looking towards the Lord? given the, the ugliness that is, is so often present right within the church that he founded. 
See, I hate this question uh, because uh, I'm 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 not a guru. I'm not a spiritual model for anybody. Okay, I'm uh, I'm a I'm a Catholic by the grace of God, um, and uh, I'm satisfied that the Church's core claims about herself, about who she is because of who God has made her to be, are true. The Catholic Church is true. That's why I'm Catholic. That's why I keep practicing. Um, and, and, and that's it. There's nothing that any of us can do to change that. Mm. That is precisely the reason that I think we all have skin in this game. We all have a stake in this. We're all stakeholders, not just all the baptized, by the way, because the people who are not baptized have a right to the gospel and more desperate need of us than even those of us who are uh, baptized and fallen away. You know, the, the sacraments are efficacious. Okay. Um, once you're a baptized Christian, you have the faith. You can run from it. You can hate it. You can denigrate it. You can spit on it. You can try to outrun it. You can pretend you don't, but you do, okay? Can't wash away your baptism. You can't wash away the baptism, all right? Um, we all have a right to the gospel, and to the church as Christ intended her. And that's why we all have skin in the game. Plus, the church is a major player in society. Uh, you know, you, you close down the Catholic hospitals, the Catholic schools, uh, all of the uh, uh, the social services that we do, all and, and not just institutionally, right? Um, there are lots of Catholics out there doing great work on their own without so much as a buy your leave, and they're doing it from from church authority, right? Mm. Um, and they're they're doing that uh, well because they believe that that's what Jesus wants them to do, and they're right because He wants us to help each other and and be his instruments in the world. Um, all of that goes away and, and society, you know, is going to have a, a hard time, mm. right? You want to, you know, we talk about being cultural leaving or stuff like that. And, and, and sure thing. Absolutely. Right. Um, but that, that's, that's what it looks like. It, it makes the, makes the bread edible, uh, you know, mm. uh, and, uh, boy, I could, I could go on all day about that, you know, and, and sort of stretch that metaphor and see how, how, how far I can stretch it. With, uh, well, but I, I think that the, 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 the point is made. Uh, I share that sentiment very much. The church is true. What, what the church teaches about Christ, the gospel that's been handed on to us, it's the truth. And because I know it to be true that Jesus is who he says he is, that the, the passion and cross and resurrection matter, because I know that to be true, it's not a, a 
troublesome thing for me to to stay Catholic. It's more a troublesome thing for me to read some of your articles, uh, and 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 I mean that in the in the best sense. It's troubling to read the stories of 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 bad actors. It's troublesome to read the stories of injustice. It's troublesome to read the stories uh, that are are the a source of of scandal. Now, a source of scandal in the sense that the people who did the things are a source of scandal, not the story itself. Like reading an article is not the thing that scandalizes me. It's what they did that scandalizes me. Um, and I think that's important because Jesus tells us not to be a cause of scandal. Uh, he's, he's not talking to reporters who are reporting that there is a scandal. Uh, <laughs> but the, the, the reality that there's, that there's this stuff there just convinces me more and more that what Jesus asks of his priests, what he asks of his church and the universal call to holiness that Lumen Gentium highlights so beautifully. This is this is the the thing. This is what's what's real at the at the core of everything else. This is the this is the heart. And if we are a perfect society, we have everything necessary right there. We can overcome every scandal and every and every difficulty. We just have to actually want to do it, and we have to do the work. But it doesn't change the truth of the gospel. It doesn't change the truth of who Jesus is. It doesn't change the the reality of what happens with the sacraments, and it doesn't change the fact that God is still working and is still working on us and and through us. I, uh, quite right and very well said. Um, if I could yes and it just for a second here, and I don't know how much time we have, but it's also important to, 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 to recognize that uh, the, the constitution of the church, right, is divinely given, and it's a hierarchical constitution, okay? Uh, the, the, the pope and the bishops in communion with him govern the church, all right? They have a threefold munis, a threefold power of governance. They teach, they sanctify, they govern. Um, how well they do that at any given time is not guaranteed by anyone at all anywhere except that they're not going to make such an absolute mess of it that uh, the whole thing is going to fall apart. Mm. The bark of Peter, as we say, will come safely to port. What shape the bark is in when she does finally call, that's a different, you know, all bets are off on that. Mm. All right. Uh, it also means, however, that, you know, the church has had that that divinely given hierarchical constitution since day one. All right. And there have been very different configurations down through history of power in the church. All right. Um, and the one that, that we have today is not necessarily uh, one that really can or ought to continue to serve us. I think it's perfectly legitimate for people to uh, explore. I think we, it, these are hard conversations that we do need to have about how to organize the exercise of power in the mm. church, okay? Um, w and we need to figure out ways to do that that it will not fall afoul of the hierarchical constitution, right? But there are two extremes there. I kind of think of it as, uh, well, you know, in Olympic judging, right? You, you, so you remove the highest and the lowest scores, right. right? Well, the two extremes there are, you know, well, let's flatten everything. Well, you can't do that because Jesus is who he says he is and has given us his mystical body set up in a 
certain way that is to his liking. And so we couldn't if we wanted to, but shouldn't want to flatten everything, mm. right? On the other is, well, this is what Jesus gave us. This is the way things are and, you know, tough. Well, no, because we have organized power differently in the past. And so we can do it differently again in the present and looking into the future, all right? The church is capable of reforming herself. We know this because she has. Now, here's another thing, and stop me when you, you need to, but it's it's worth mentioning. Um, what does reform look like, mm. right? What does a successful church reform look like? Uh, well, folks, you decide whether this is the rain cloud or the silver lining, but it looks like your bishop lives in your diocese. That's what successful church reform looks like. What am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about one of the major problems in the church for hundreds of years going into the Council of Trent. Absentee bishops, guys who were named the bishop of a place in order to, you know, get the emoluments uh, uh, associated with uh, a particular diocese mm. who never sat, uh, never set foot in their diocese, uh, didn't live there, uh, you know, uh, didn't govern, had not a care in the world for the place as long as they were able con to continue collecting the taxes, all right? The council fathers said enough of this. You know, this this really does it, – it's got to stop and we've got to make this stick. There had been, you know, desultory efforts to reform before the Council of Trent. Uh, but they said, no, we've got to make this stick. And, you know, it took them 100 years to make it stick, right? It's still not perfect because we have Pope Francis rightly complaining about airport bishops right. to this and day. That's exactly the know? phrase that I was thinking of. That uh, it, So it's, it's still there. But we, all of us, expect that our bishop live in the diocese, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, so in that sense— the reform was successful because we'd be surprised if it were otherwise. 500 years ago, it was a big deal when the bishop came to town. What do you mean when he came to town? I mean, yeah, the bishop literally, well, if he came imagine to if diocese. the bishop of Bridgeport was, you know, off in, you know, in Palm Springs uh, uh, for, you know, and, and set foot in his diocese, you know, came to, to, to St. Augustine's once every, you know, three years to, wow. you know, uh, it, it'd be, uh, it'd be intolerable. Right. And uh, rightly a source of scandal. And rightly a source of scandal. Yeah. Right. But it was the order of the day. It was scandalous 500 years ago that this is the way things were. Right. And right. people finally said, all right, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. And so the church does then demonstrate its ability to reform. We can we can fix this problem, and it might take us a while to do it, but we can do it. Yeah, can 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 we maybe wait until we haven't lost you know half of Germany though, and <laughs> uh, you know had uh, a, a hundred years of incessant war and the the you know the near total collapse of 
the church as a, a moral authority in society and all of those things, right? Uh, because, you know, half measures and kicking the can and desultory attempts at reform and, hey, let's deal with this, but not really because there are too many interests involved and, and what have you. And we don't want to rock the boat and we don't need to upset our sort of arrangements with the civil, with civil society and the secular power. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and that's how we got, uh, well, the 16th and the 17th centuries, <laughs> which folks go read your history books. They're not, uh, not, not, unalloyed awesomeness there. <laughs> but see, here's here's the thing coming out of the 16th and 17th centuries. We're still here. Yeah, we still are here. Uh, and, you know, we, uh, we got saints, you know, from St. Charles Borromeo to St. Yeah. Ignatius Loyola to, uh, you know. And you, it just you, suggests you that there's something bigger. Mary. There's something bigger in, in the life of the church. There's something bigger to the gospel. There's something bigger to the Catholic faith than, than just those, those places of scandal and immorality and injustice. There's something bigger. And... When when we can remember that and keeping that eye on history, I think is an important one. Uh, I think oh, I think the, the keeping an eye on history is especially important in in the church because it, it helps you to not be too rocked by by certain things, but it also helps you to be uh, cautious in in how you choose to respond to other things. But that idea of, of reform, maybe it's maybe it's the eye towards history that becomes the challenge with reform. Uh, we think, well, we've got a lot of time to figure this out. And uh, to an American sensibility, there's there's no such thing as as a lot of time. Everything has to happen now, right? <laughs> Yesterday, so, 10 yeah. minutes ago. <laughs> could, could we please have this have this taken care of immediately? A and there's a certain genius there as well that we do have to do things. But sometimes we can we can act to reform without really taking stock. There's also the element of that, which is why can't, you know, from the other, why can't they just, right? right. Well, do you really have you stopped to think about that? Like I get where it's coming from from a you know this sense of frustration, right? Uh, why can't they just? Most of us are pretty good when we look around in the world and we see things happening um, in organizations, outfits, uh, whole sectors of society, even society at large itself, you know, the, the government, right? Why can't they just? Uh, at catching ourselves and saying, ah, you know what? I know that I, I know the world doesn't work that way. I know that, you know, reality is. And, and we need to take a step back, have a big think, and and understand that, you know, we need to take a beat and do this the right way. Okay, fine. We do need to do something. You're right. But not anything will do. Mm. Um, we, we tend to forget that when we look at the church. Um, and I understand why, because on the other side, you know, Anyone who has ever, you know, been involved in church government at any level for any length of time will know, oh, all right, we need to have a meeting about that. We, yeah, we need to talk about that. We need to have a think about that. That That's usually, you know, a way to say, all right, we're going to either talk this to death or we're going to wait for, you know, people to be distracted and move on so we don't have to actually do anything, right? Um, that also is, you know, generally human in its as a phenomenon, uh, but why it is that it seems to be 
particularly strong and why leaders in the church these days tend to be particularly uh, uh, fond of that style of management uh, is a question that I think we can reasonably ask ourselves. That sounds reasonable. <laughs> All right, the uh, the last question that I've got for you, and uh, I've I've decided I want to try to make this the 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 last question that I ask any guest who comes on the tangent. Okay. Uh, and I think you might answer this differently than than previous guests have have answered it, um, given given the background that you have. But it's it's very simply, um, what do you want priests to know? What do you want them to do? What do you need from them? Everything. <laughs> Except the things that I don't need. Uh, I say that you guys listening at home can't see my tongue only very lightly ensconced in my cheek. <laughs> All right. Um, it, it's an excellent question. Um At the f base, very, very core, you know, uh, bottom line basics, nuts and bolts. Um, say mass reverently. Uh, be in the box often enough that I can find you when I need you. Um, and um, be more willing to pray for people than to, uh, solve their problems and some understand that sometimes, you know, we, we, we do need to talk, um, and th that we don't expect you to, uh, to, to, to have the solution that, you know, uh, th the chrism that you got on your hands doesn't make you wise or powerful or, authoritative or smart or, you know, anything. Um, be yourselves um, and uh, be there for your people and uh, be your own man, all right? Um, be willing to ask us what we think, uh, and be willing to hear the things that maybe you don't want to, mm. um, and know that we love you very, very much and that we're praying for you, not as much as we probably should, uh, but more than you might think. Thanks, Chris. That's great. All right. Well, this is The Tangent. I'm very grateful to Dr. Christopher Altieri for joining us today. As always, you can find The Tangent on the Veritas Catholic Network app, wherever you get your podcasts, and airing live on 1350 AM, 103.9 FM on Fridays at 1230. God bless you.